0: Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh.
2: And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about the war in Yemen. It's entering its seventh year. The UN calls it the world's worst humanitarian disaster. Many people will remember the 2011 revolution. What are many sweeping across the Arab world at the time? In Yemen, protests toppled President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had held power for more than 30 years. They forced him to hand over power to his vice president, Abid Rabul Mansour Hadi. Three years later, a northern rebel group, the Houthis, who were by then in an alliance with former President Saleh, seized the capital Sanaa. They put President Hadi under house arrest and he fled the capital in early 2015. Saudi Arabia stepped in quickly in Hadi's support. Saudi leaders accused the Houthis of being backed by Iran. They feared a hostile force building up on their border with Yemen. Western powers, especially the US, back the Saudis with weapons, by refueling aircraft, with intelligence and diplomatic cover.
0: For years the UN has called Yemen's civil war the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Fighting, starvation
1: and disease have killed many thousands of people.
0: Both sides, the Houthis and the Hadi government, have fought amongst themselves. The Houthis fell out with Saleh and killed him in 2017. The forces fighting the Houthis are even more fractious. They include the parts of the Yemeni army that didn't side with the Houthis, the Southern Transitional Council, or STC, a separatist movement based in the southern city of Aden, Islah, a Sunni Islamist party and military network, and an array of other militias. In 2019, the STC fought Hadi loyalists, a civil war within a civil war. The Saudis had to step in to mediate and keep the anti-Houthi alliance together. The human toll of the war has been truly terrible. The U.N. estimates that close to a quarter of a million people have died, roughly half from indirect causes like malnutrition and disease. Many millions more are starving or homeless.
2: This war has to end, and to underscore our commitment, we're ending all American support for offensive operations in the war in Yemen, including relevant arms sales. New US President Joe Biden has ended American support for the Saudi led campaign. US Saudi relations have come under further strain in the last couple of days with the release of a US intelligence report that accuses Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of being complicit in the operation that killed Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The Saudis are also eyeing nervously the US's potential return to the Iran nuclear deal. At the same time, the war in Yemen is poised to get still worse. The Houthis are on the offensive in Marib. The government's last stronghold in Yemen's northern highlands, crisis group warned last week that the assault could displace many more Yemenis, tip parts of the country into famine and make the war even harder to end.
0: Houthi rebels push forward in the northern Yemeni province of Marib. After more than six years of war, the Houthis want Marib because it's the Yemeni government's last northern bastion. To capture it could bolster the Houthis at the negotiating table. To talk with us about the war, we're fortunate to be joined by Peter Salisbury, Crisis Group's expert on Yemen. Peter has spent years covering Yemen for Crisis Group, for The Economist, The Financial Times and other media outlets. Peter, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Peter, could we start with the Marib offensive? Crisis Group published an alert recently warning of the dangers of the assault. And can you tell us a bit about how that fits into the bigger picture of the war and why we should be particularly concerned about this?
1: Sure. So the first thing to note is this isn't just one war being fought between two sides, which is a point that we at Crisis Group really belabor. Um it's it, there are lots of different moving parts. The bit of the war that gets the most attention is the internationalized aspect which we can boil down to the Houthis on on one side sending missiles and, and drones over the border into Saudi Arabia they say in exchange for Saudi airstrikes on their area and a Saudi imposed um blockade on Sanaa International Airport and Hodeidah port on on the the west coast but then we've got the actual internal conflicts plural between all these different Yemeni groups on the the ground and that's made even more complicated by the fact that you've got this this general division between two formerly independent countries the north of yemen the yemen arab republic and what was a socialist state in in the south and the the way that the fighting has has broken down the houthis control most of the the pre-unity north and marib which sits to the east of of Sanaa and is the site of major oil and gas facilities power plants is really the the government's last major urban stronghold in the the north. So if they move in there and they take Marib, they will have in effect um, taken over most of the the pre-unity north with some exceptions in in Taz and on the, the Red Sea coast. And symbolically it's going to strike a really big blow to the the internationally recognized government who the Houthis in effect deposed um, in 2015 and have been trying to work their way back into the equation with Saudi saudi support so that's kind of the the big picture piece and why this is important to the houthis and to the government who see this as really an existential threat to their rule if they lose marib then they really have a toehold in certain areas of aden in the south there's an area called shabwa where they have a presence but really i mean they're they're very much out of the picture as kind of a, a meaningful force on the on the ground And then we've got the the reason that the international observers of the conflict are so worried about Murray, which is the humanitarian consequences. This war has displaced hundreds of thousands of people, and a lot of them have gone to to Marib and have settled in these informal and formal camps for displaced people in and around Marib city. So as the Houthis close in, you've got people who are already displaced from other parts of the country being caught again in the, the crosshairs of frontline fighting, and you've got a lot of people inside Marib, which has become this really bustling hub over the course of the the conflict you've got people inside marab who have left houthi controlled areas because they don't feel that they can they can live under their, their rule. So we're looking at the potential for urban combat, which is always messy, always nasty, always terrible for the civilian population. We're looking at a, a displacement crisis that could see hundreds of thousands, if not a million plus people fleeing the area really quickly. And we've got a potential power struggle, battles for these oil and gas facilities, which produce about 8% of Yemen's basic fuel needs, diesel, gasoline, so on and so forth, but 90% of liquefied petroleum gas, but is basically the main fuel used in Yemeni households to cook. And if that gets knocked out, that's gonna have a really severe impact on the humanitarian crisis in in Yemen. So all in all, a battle for the city is at one and the same time, extremely important to the the various different parties involved in the conflict, but also threatens to have profound humanitarian and economic consequences.
2: Peter, could you talk a little bit about the Houthis themselves? As you say, they they now control much of the north. Most Yemenis live under their rule, but who are they? You know, how big is their force? Who's in it, and what are they fighting for?
1: That's a that's a really good question, um, and I wish, as ever, that I had a really succinct answer. And if you speak to the Houthis' rivals, what they'll say is that these guys are representatives of the former which ruled the north of Yemen for about a thousand years until uh, a revolution in the, the 1960s. And they'll say they just want to restore the, the pre-1960s rule of a group of Hashemites, descendants of the Prophet Muhammad from the, the Zaidi sect of, of Shia Islam. Others will say that they're really part of an Iranian project to take over the, the region. And funnily enough, the reality is a, a little bit more complicated. The Houthis start out as as kind of part of a a revivalist movement for Zaydi Islam, um, a, a movement that that in the 1980s and 1990s becomes really worried about the incursion of Sunni practices and in particular, sort of, they'd say Wahhabi practices, Salafi practices from um Saudi Arabia, and this charismatic leader, Hussein al-Houthi takes on some ideas from outside the country from from all over the place and really becomes very much anti-external intervention anti-western intervention and becomes really radical in his rhetoric the government decides to take him down in effect in the early 2000s he's killed during fighting in sada which is kind of the the houthi family's sort of home area um in 2004 and that sparked six years of of war between a, a growing quote-unquote Houthi force, they call them Ansar Allah, partisans of, of God, and the government. And I think, like any movement that, that we look look at like this, there are ideological underpinnings for the group. There are people who genuinely think that they're on a, a mission from from God. There are people who are in it for power, and there are people who are in it for revenge. Who are angry and upset about the effects of those wars and since this war began since saudi arabia intervened in in yemen are angry at what they see as external aggression directed towards yemen by they'll say saudi arabia the us and and others and there are big questions about what the houthis want in in the long term again when we look at military organizations with um, ideological roots the goals and the goalposts shift, especially when those groups become more successful. So some people within the movement will say, look, we just want a political settlement, which takes the the Saudis and the Americans out of the equation. And then we can work with all Yemenis on sort of a, a nice democratic future. And there are others who who will say pretty openly, well, actually, um, we're part of the, the axis of resistance um, and we want to pushback against sort of external influence in, in the region, which is, I mean, common rhetoric in a lot of the groups that we look at in, in the region. But given that eight 10 years ago, people didn't take the Houthis particularly seriously when they said these kind of things, and they now control population centres where about 20 million people live, I think we have to give it, it some weight.
2: And Peter, we, we spoke the other day, and you, you said something that, that I found particularly interesting when you talked about how, I mean, the Houthis were the Houthis. But then the groups that now fight alongside them also comprise much of the former Yemeni army. And in fact, many Saleh loyalists who, you know, a decade ago used to be fighting the Houthis.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. So during the, those Sada wars, as they're called, between 2004 and 2010, you basically had the Houthis against the, the Yemeni states led by President Ali Abdullah Saleh. But then Saleh is unseated in 2011 and really is looking for revenge against former allies from isla and is looking at a a way back to power and he enters into this tacit alliance with the houthis which allows them to come down and take over Sanaa in 2014 and i think the theory on on his his side is well we'll bring them in they'll fight against these other guys and then we'll we'll ride in and, and save the the day at some point and we'll, we'll show ourselves to be the defenders of the republic against these various different islamists and the west will back us and help us out and it's important to remember this is happening just a year after the the coup in in egypt so that there's a view on how the west sees various different political Islamists groups um and either he miscalculates or things go too well and they end up basically working together to take over the entire country and it turns out that the Houthis are actually a lot better at integrating Salah's guys into their ranks than than vice versa and maybe 60% of the military including all the the toys that the Saleh regime has been building up over decades, ballistic missiles, mortars, high-end vehicles, including stuff the Americans gave them for counter-terrorism, all fall into the Houthis' hands. And then in 2017, just massive mounting tensions between the two, which their rivals are trying to play up, and they end up entering into battles. At that point, it's actually really hard for people outside of Yemen and inside of Yemen to gauge the, the balance of power. But the Houthis dispatched... Salah really quite quickly. And what we see now is that they've been building this really securitized quasi state in the the northwest of of the country, which has really taken strong control over all of the areas that it that it holds, has sort of put down any Internal dissent and is really on on the front foot militarily. Um, so it's it's been sort of intellectually it's it's fascinating to watch the the evolution of this group, but it's very challenging in terms of working out how we can as crisis group encourage, persuade all the different parties involved in in the conflict to move towards some kind of settlement when they see the Houthis as being so strong and so capable of absorbing anyone who enters into their sphere of influence.
0: Peter, that's a fascinating and I think a vivid picture of of the complexities on the ground. Just one follow-up, and particularly um, in light of what I think often outside of Yemen is perceived as as very strong views by Yemenis speaking to the outside world on, mm. on the various sides of this conflict. Do the Houthis enjoy um, a support from a sizable constituency in the country? What is their base of support like within the population?
1: I mean, that's that's a very hard question to answer. And certainly if you went on Twitter, an English language Twitter in particular tomorrow, um, you'd you'd be given the impression that they're extremely unpopular. And we've seen them becoming increasingly heavy-handed with the local population in the the north of Yemen, which has has made them less popular in in areas that they control. But as long as the war has gone on, and people in the the north of the country, Houthi-controlled areas, have been told that, look, this is a war of external aggression. This is a war led by Saudi Arabia. They're blockading the country. They're bombing the country. The Houthis have been able to tap into a nationalist northern Yemeni sentiment that has maybe not made them popular but has sustained support for for them as this kind of resistance force to quote-unquote external aggression so yeah not not that much I'd say buy-in in the general population to their overall movement and goals but as long as the war persists a sense among some people that they, they need to be part of this nationalist movement to defend Yemen. Really, really complicated. Then, of course, completely different constituencies who see the Houthis as very retrograde, as trying to set Yemen back 5,100 years, um, who will describe them as, as terrorists, so on and so forth, who will argue there can be no peace with the Houthis, who argue that there there is just no reckoning, with, with them. Um, and a, a lot of those people are obviously outside of Houthi controlled areas, um, but we have, to, we have to listen to their voices as well. So again, I mean, as always with our workers as crisis group, the challenge is in threading the needle um, and understanding where a middle ground might be that's acceptable for everybody to stop the fighting and, and move the country towards some kind of political process, which is highly challenging.
0: Can I take you to the to the south and and can you tell us a bit you in your most recent analysis you write about the possibility that there could be a coming confrontation in the south of the country uh, who would be fighting whom and what should we know about about this aspect of the conflict
1: In the south you've got two different dynamics probably three or four different dynamics but let's try and simplify it um as best we we can you've got the internationally re- recognized government led by Abu Mansur Hadi, the the man who was made Yemen's transitional president in 2012, who has pretty strong support in the east of the the south, in parts of um, Shabwa and Abiyan governorates, and he's from Abiyan. But then to, to the west you've got Aden, which is the, the south's kind of de facto capital and Yemen's temporary capital and areas are around around there, which is mainly controlled by a group called the STC, the Southern Transitional Council. In 2019, the STC, after several rounds of fighting in and around Aden, took over the city entirely and really pushed Yemen um, into a civil war within a civil war, as, as you said. Um, And the STC is is obviously watching what's happening in the north with a great deal of interest. Saudi Arabia intervened in 2019 and worked out a deal between the STC and the government that is meant to ultimately see them basically form a unity government and integrate their forces into a single sort of line of, of command. The unity government has been formed. The integration has not happened. And I think if you're the STC right now, you're waiting to see if the government collapses in, in Marib and then going back to the Saudis and saying, well, don't you really want to partner with us? But uh, on the basis that we want independence at some point. So there's this this real trigger flashpoint in, in the South that could see the STC simply chuck the the government back out of then maybe try and take over sort of government-aligned Areas And then you've got the Houthis themselves who could push down from Marib into the government controlled governorate of Shabwa, um, which one has been really useful for trade and smuggling into the the northern in in the past. And also just from a symbolic and strategic point of view would be another way of just really underlining that the the government um, has has lost its part of of the, the conflict. So lots to play for there and a lot that could go wrong.
0: And what about the role of uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula? You mentioned briefly that at some point, counterterrorism was a major factor in external um, aid and intervention in Yemen. Is AQAP still part of, the, part of the story here?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, even now, when you speak to American officials, they'll tell you that counterterrorism is one of, if not the top priorities for them in in yemen and aqap for a period was seen as the deadliest al-qaeda franchise in in terms of its its potential to mount attacks on on the us and and its allies we often get caught up in the branding of these groups so we talk about aqap um and we see aqap as a, a monolith and as kind of like having this sort of hideous ideology that that no one else buys into um, and we've seen the core leadership of the group really decimated um, by airstrikes, by counterterrorism raids, really sort of pushed out of space that they took. And at the beginning of the war, they took over a city, Mukalla, in the south. Um, but we've also seen... Fighters aligned with AQAP and with AQAP-like ideology seeded into the different fighting forces across the country. We've seen growing sectarian rhetoric throughout the conflict and we've seen Saudi Arabia and the UAE throw a lot of backing behind um, Salafi militias, militias with really hardline um, religious views who were engaged in in various rounds of fighting with the Houthis in the north in the, the past. So while AQAP as an organization looks to be on its back heels, doesn't seem to have a ton of relevance, isn't really doing much on, on the ground, I think we have to look at that longer term trend. Um, and again, if Marib were to collapse, let's say, um, one of the things that we might see is, is religious leaders invoking some, some pretty hardline sectarian rhetoric in trying to sort of boost people's morale in the, the fight against the, the Houthis. So there is sort of a long term, the, the long tail of this conflict could really be maybe not AQAP itself, but an AQAP-like group.
2: So AQAP itself, Peter, if I got this right, AQAP itself is is considerably weaker, as you say. Its, it's leaders have been killed, but aspects of its ideology because of the conflict, are now quite widespread among parts of the anti-Houthi front and pose a risk, especially in Yemen itself. But what about the sort of transnational element to that, the sort of external plotting that AQAP, whether rightly or wrongly, was well known for?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the really interesting things about AQAP, and you and I have talked about this a lot in the past, Richard, is that By the time the civil war began, the the then leader of AQAP, Nasser al-Wahishi, was basically al-Qaeda's global ops chief. And he he was really part of this internal movement away from transnational attacks and thinking about things like local governance. How do we spread our ideology? Is it okay for groups... That have sworn by a loyalty to um, the emir of Al Qaeda to then renounce Al Qaeda if they pursue the same goals in in the the long term. So again, we get caught up in the, the branding. People are talking about Al Qaeda as an organization as if it was 2001 and their main aim was to fly airplanes into things, whereas the their thinking for a period at least was actually pretty sophisticated in terms of looking at regional conflicts, the collapse of, of nation states such as they were, and working out how to operate in those spaces and how to to work around some of the external threats to, to their, their movement. So again, I think what we're seeing in Yemen is actually probably broadly in line with what some top leaders at the beginning of the war were thinking about, which is how do we present sort of maybe not a more sectarianized version of, of the war, but talk about injustice and talk about unjust rule and, and unjust um, leadership over the, the, the region, how external powers inflame, but don't actually resolve conflict. I think we're, we're seeing a, a lot of that that in Yemen.
2: So, Peter, let's talk about the human toll of, of the war. Just a couple of weeks ago, the UN's humanitarian chief uh, warned of the worst famine the world has seen in decades. He said that 400,000 children under the age of five are severely malnourished in their last weeks and months of life. I'm sure many of our listeners will have seen these heart-wrenching images on social media of starving Yemeni children. Can you sort of explain to us how this works? If you're in one of the parts of the country where there there are these risks of famine, why can't you get food?
1: So the the problem, humanitarians have this neat little phrase, which is the, the problem isn't availability, its access. And what that means is there's actually plenty more or less food in the the market in Yemen. But two things have happened. One, people have become overall substantially poorer. Um, wars are famously very, very bad for economies. Um, and for many people, the only job they can get is fighting on the fronts, And even then, it's not always possible to get paid when, when you go and, and fight. Um, and the second thing is that the price of goods has increased substantially for a variety of reasons, barriers to, to entry to places like Hodeida, increased insurance and shipping costs, overland transportation costs, and also just the, the collapse in the, the value of the Yemeni rial, particularly in government controlled areas. And it's kind of combined into this really toxic mess where people are becoming poorer and poorer and basic goods are becoming more and more expensive which is um I mean again I think there's there's a popular image of how famines work but that's exactly how most famines actually come come to be um and if we see more shocks to the the system then it's going to get just just even worse and what UN officials have been saying for years is look you know, we need billions of dollars a year just to just about stop things from, from getting worse. The only way that we stabilize the situation and then move towards some form of improvement is if the, the fighting stops and the, the economic aspects of, of the war are are eased off. So as long as the fighting continues, it's really hard to, to do anything. At this annual donor pledging meeting, We saw, I think, the UN saying that that sort of they got half of what they received in pledges, $1.7 billion, compared to two years earlier. So we've got to contextualize humanitarian um, funding within this pandemic, within funding crises all over the world, people cutting back funding, and also just, I think, donor fatigue, um, lots of allegations in Yemen that people have been diverting aid that they've been misappropriating it so not a ton of appetite for people to throw a lot of money at, at these kind of crises so just a, a really challenging situation that can only get worse if the conflict continues where humanitarian funding and international interest is, is really kind of reaching lows rather than highs you, as you'd hope.
2: So there's a, a new US administration of course in Washington I wanted to ask you a little bit about what that means for, for Yemen policy. On the one hand, the Biden team has a lot of people from the Obama team, and some of them are quite open about how they regret Obama's Yemen policy, giving the Saudis a free hand, uh, and they see ending the war as a priority. They also want to get back to the Iran deal, which in principle should improve relations with Tehran, although that seems to be proving more difficult than, than many of us anticipated. At the same time, to end the war, they need to work with and presumably have reasonably good relations with the Saudis. But that is also looking difficult, particularly after the release that we spoke about at the beginning of the US intelligence report about uh, Jamal Khashoggi's killing. So, you know, h- how do you see US policy shaping up? And is there any way it can be sort of extricated from this very difficult regional picture?
1: Yeah, and I, I think there's a, a wider piece of context that we should throw in here, which is There is mounting clamor in Washington, D.C., and this isn't a new thing at all, but particularly on the kind of quote unquote progressive left of the Democratic Party for the U.S. to just withdraw as best it can from the Middle East and not engage itself in what some in Washington will call just sort of these these proxy wars between Saudi Arabia and and Iran. And I think the new administration isn't going that far. It's not saying, yeah, we need to get out of the Middle East and just sort of leave everyone to duke to it out and just see what, what happens. It isn't a problem, but it's made it pretty clear that it wants to reduce its exposure, resu- reduce the amount of resource that it's, it's putting into the Middle East and focus on great power competition with China and, and Russia. So when you're someone like me who's been working on what was always seen as a bit of a backwater country, only really important for counter-terrorism purposes, and you see this this clanking machinery of massive um, policy change, which is meant to change US strategy, not just for the next six months to, to one year, but for the coming decades, it's really hard to work out how you're going to fit your, uh, your policy messaging into that for, for better or, or for worse. And what we've seen um, is, as you say, the U.S. wants to return to JCPOA. That's going to take a little while. And for the first time out that I can remember, Yemen really very high on the U.S.'s list of, of priorities. And what, what officials in the administration are saying is we're going to remove any ambiguity, that might have been there where we're supporting the military effort here, but saying this can only end through a political resolution. And we're throwing all our weight behind um, a diplomatic end to the war, a lot of energy behind trying to get a ceasefire and a a move towards political talks, which in broad terms is really good news, but has ruffled uh, a lot of feathers. And we always come back to this problem of it's, it's great that the US wants to do this, but we have to actually look at Yemen itself as kind of this really complex, twisty turny conflict where the party over which the U.S. has little to no leverage, the Houthis, are on the front foot and are, are about to, they in their minds, sort of end the war for the north of the, the country, which would be a, a pretty huge victory. So the, I think the, the question is, what can the U.S. do to really swing that? And the I think the point that they've been trying to show to prove in Yemen has been that they can walk and chew gum at the same time, that they can work with Iran to re-enter the JCPOA, and they can also work diplomatically to end conflicts like that one, the one in Yemen, in a way that doesn't just benefit Iran to the cost of, of their regional partners. So it's it's a real test case in many ways for this this new policy. And I think the fear among many of, of my Yemeni contacts is they they see that repositioning of the the US. They see this this shift in approach. Um, and they they want, worry that sort of they could get a little bit left behind and swept up in in all of this and that the US could Push Saudi Arabia into working out some kind of backroom deal with uh, the Houthis um, that doesn't really end the war in terms of the internal Yemeni conflict, but works out something between the the Houthis and the Saudis. I think knowing some of the people who are working on the Yemen file on the U.S. side, I definitely don't think that's that's what they they want to do. I don't think that's that's the aim. But they do have to overcome. A lot of sort of negative perceptions about this the shift in in policy and we as an organization have to be pretty clear-eyed about what the the long-term aim of of us policy appears to to be right now for those of us working on middle east conflict it's more resource now so that less resources can be expended at some point in the the not too distant future
0: Peter, let's assume that that diplomatic investment that you're talking about happens and that indeed the backing for the military campaign ends and the and the D designation goes through. It, Crisis Group has written about the idea that thinking about this as a two-party framework, a negotiation between the Hadi government and the Houthis uh, is insufficient and it doesn't end the war that you're describing, which is multi-layered and involves both different regions but also different parties, what would it look like assuming this this investment were to happen to stage or plan a negotiation that would actually have some hope of working?
1: Yeah, so um, we, being Crisis Group, we we wrote a very long paper uh, about this um, last year where. We we basically said, look, there, there's this international two party framework, which kind of ignores in many ways, many of the key parties to the conflict, but also many of the local actors who would help create stability in the event that we get to a ceasefire and some kind of political talks and um, what we we kind of said was we've got to break down an end to the an end to the war quote unquote in in Yemen into really rational steps and the first point is just stop stop the fighting and get the parties quote unquote to the table to start talking about the country's future but what we also say is you probably need interim governance arrangements you don't want to actually rush that process of of those talks so you need to set something up maybe short of a a unity government that allows people and goods to pass between different areas of control in the country to show that people can manage kind of cross-country security, that they can get the economy back into an okay place while they discuss the future of the country. And we also say that that conversation over the future of Yemen needs to be far more inclusive. And in fact, um, uh, again, as, as Richard knows, we're working on a report on some of the the more kind of holistic aspects of what an inclusive process looks like, how, how you include civil society, women, unarmed groups who, who could play a role in, in localised peace building development, so on, so forth. But without those groups buy in, I think two things happen. One, you don't have that sustained local support for what's happening at the, the national level. And that makes it much more likely that people are going to find it easy to to return to conflict even at sort of like the local level not forgetting this is a series of different conflicts all joined together all over the the country and the second thing is that you're not negotiating the substance of a political agreement you're you're limiting it to some pretty narrow interests, which is really sort of the houthis the the Hadi government in whatever form it, it takes and then sort of Saudi Arabia with kind of a, a, a secret well, a not very secret a de facto veto over over that settlement and that's probably not going to be something that most local groups really like so we have this this problem of are we gonna move towards a process where um, if it's too rushed if it's oversimplified then we could end sort of the quote-unquote big war which is the one that we see on our TVs, airstrikes, drones, um, frontline fighting, and just see Yemen descend into a series of kind of smaller wars. And I hesitate to kind of use the examples of Somalia, Afghanistan, or even e- even Syria, but that's that's kind of the, the direction that it could go in if, if mismanaged. This needs really heavy, long-term, well-thought-through investment that, that really looks at Yemen as kind of the, the three-dimensional game of chess the, that it is.
2: So uh, Peter it's been over just over 10 years since the revolution in Yemen since people first took to the streets and today the country you know as you've described it much of it lies in tatters and, and the hopes of the revolution I assume for many people they've largely been destroyed uh, you know this this unbelievable tragedy that, that Yemenis have suffered. If you look back on it how would you describe what went wrong?
1: Yeah I mean it's hard in some ways to, to believe that, that 10 years have, have passed. And in Yemen, the 18th of, of March um, will be the, the 10th anniversary of, of what's known as the, the Friday of, of Dignity Massacre, when security forces um, opened fire on, on protesters in Sana'a, which both kind of upped the ante. Um, in terms of the the peaceful uprising, but also led some parts of sort of uh, some allies of of the regime to, to break away and led to sort of this this sort of really quite violent internal conflict, which persists, you could argue, to this this day in in Yemen. Um, and it's really hard to not to look back on on the past decade and feel quite quite melancholy, quite quite depressed about about the whole thing. Um, I think. The, the lesson that, that we've learned in Yemen is actually goes back to, to this conversation we're having, where the, the theory of case was, let's have um, an elite compact that sort of puts all the people who are fighting each other together on one table, and then try and create some kind of inclusive process that brings together sort of the people who went out into the streets, who caused civil unrest, but who wouldn't actually sort of play a role in a military confrontation at this this point. Um, And there's some good project design there. um, But at the the same time, what we saw during Yemen's transition was this sort of unity government made up of sort of basically the old regime and and sort of the the familiar elite political faces um, running the country and doing so not very well. Um, And on the other side, we saw this national dialogue, which was really inclusive, but had no actual say in the way that the country was was being run. Um, And you had this sort of utopian rhetoric about a bright future for Yemen, a new constitution, so on and so forth. But people looked at What was happening in their their lived existences security is getting worse the economy is getting worse so on and so forth and and they get really unhappy with it and that creates space for actors like the former salah regime to to work to make things even worse yeah i i think it it all just comes back to this this question of one seeing places like yemen as real places and not just kind of pieces on a, a risk board so US UK interest in in Yemen during its transitional period was really sort of making sure that the the cancer terrorism wills kept turning that they could use drone strikes to attack AQAP and that meant sustaining the old elite but trying to create more space for for other people and also meant that you know the economy governance local security wasn't actually the top of their their list of priorities um, and of course, that feeds down, the, the elite know that. And people on the streets get it because everything's getting getting worse. And that creates space for people like the the former Saleh regime to kind of make things even worse, to, to make sure that the electricity's cut off, your classic kind of coup moves. And it makes space for groups like the Houthis who come in and sort of say, hey, we're going to bring in a, a fresh broom and we're going to fix all, all these things. So when I think about... What a political process looks about in the future. And we have these conversations, Richard, about, you know, mediators say, get an elite compact and then try and and fix it. The problem with Yemen, of course, is that we already did that, and we're we're arguably reaping the consequences, reaping the the negative benefits of that. But at the, the same time, let let's be honest we put as much time and effort into thinking about what a better alternative is as crisis group in Yemen and places all over the the world. And it's really, really hard.
0: Peter, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, really, Peter, that was that was great. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, guys. It's always fun.
0: Richard, I thought that was an incredibly illuminating conversation with Peter and I really would uh, recommend to our listeners the longer report that Peter referred to the Rethinking Peace in Yemen report from last year. It's it's incredible in its depth and I think in giving readers a sense of the kind of complexity that Peter was talking about. Uh, and of course, the more recent statement on Marib. Uh, I, of, of everything he said, all of which was fascinating, I thought at the end when he said the reminder to policymakers and those who are discussing Yemen in various capitals around the world to remember that places like Yemen are real places and they're not just sort of p- pieces in a game to be moved around. Um, I thought that was an incredibly important point, and the kind of of depth and detail that he was talking about today reminds us that these kinds of conflicts are are rarely about one single actor or two actors that need to sit at a table to solve the problem. that the level of intervention in Yemen in the past decade means that to end this conflict now, Uh, is an incredibly, incredibly complex task for everyone involved.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and, I mean, you referenced the report that we did uh, last year, and that really takes apart you know, the, the sort of different complexity on both sides, how, particularly on, you know, on the the anti-Houthi side, how how fractious the, the sort of anti-Houthi alliance is, and takes apart, you know, some of the stuff that Peter said this time, which was just fascinating about, you know, who the Houthis are. Uh, you know, they're sort of portrayed as this rebel force or this non-state armed group, which, you know, to use a not very helpful jargon, but they control territory where three quarters of the population live. They control the capital, their forces are what eighty to a hundred thousand strong? I mean, it's a you know, it's a it's a big force, and it's hard to imagine a settlement where they accept being a, a a junior partner. I thought that was striking. You know, the the second bit that I thought was particularly striking right at the moment is how this relates to sort of U.S. policy and the regional picture. And you know, as, as Peter said, the U.S. Diplom- diplomacy on Yemen is going to be hard enough. It's you know, it's it's not the only thing that's important in Yemen, but it will be key. And yet sort of it's tied up very much with, with Biden's Gulf policy, um, which is still you know, up in the air. It's still not clear exactly how the administration is going to get back to the JCPOA. It says it wants to do that, but it's caught at the moment in this standoff with Iran. Neither Tehran nor Washington wants to take the first step. They both seem to be, seem to be making it more complicated than it needs to be. And then you've got the Saudis. And of course, if the Biden team does want to get back to the Iran deal, they also want to do so without alienating traditional allies. The Saudi's arguably foremost among them. So I think there's just a lot that's up in the air about the Biden administration's approach to the region. And it's especially unclear how ending Yemen's war, which again is the world's worst humanitarian disaster, according to the UN, famine looming, this terrible human cost that we we talked about, uh, you know, it's very unclear how the Biden administration is going to do that alongside some of the other challenges it has in the region.
0: Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh.
2: You can find more of our work on Yemen or on many of the other world's crises that we cover on our website, crisisgroup.org, or please follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group.
0: Thank you very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida Holly-Nambi.
2: And thank you especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question or comment, a rating or review, and we hope you will join us again next week.